president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on Sirius XM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETS sponsor, and also a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, the author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note the professor is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer of sale or investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We're going to have a great show today. In the studio joining me is actually a new colleague of mine, Jeff Winnegar. Uh, he used to be formerly a BMO private bank, but he uh, this week has, has joined Wisdom Tree and he was traveling with me in Philadelphia. Got him to come to the studio, join us on the show. Jeff, welcome to Philadelphia. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate it. Uh, you've been a return guest. Glad to have you here in the studio. We'll, we'll talk more with Jeff on the second part of the program. Uh, first part of the program, we're going to have Brad Setzer. He's a senior fellow and acting director of the Maurice R. Greenberg Center for Geoeconomics at the Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, he does a lot of writing. It's going to be a very interesting conversation with Brad coming up. Uh, but before we, we get to Brad, Professor, let me turn it to you for some market commentary. Uh, a little weakness here on Friday going into you know Trump's speech next week. People are looking at what's he going to be focusing on. Uh, what are you? What are you focused on here at the end of the week? Well, you're certainly right. I mean, Dow is down 41 points now. If it doesn't surpass that, we will break a 10-day winning streak uh, for the Dow. Quite remarkable to say the least. But you know, there's got to be a day. Sell-offs are not more. What's really more interesting to me, with all this, uh, you know, excitement about a. The March meeting being a live meeting for the Fed, there's more and more people think they might raise. Is take a look at what happened to bond rates uh, this morning. They fell to 231 on the 10-year Treasury. That's the lowest we've had since November. Um, uh, now a couple other times got just about low, and the bond rate has moved up a couple basis points. Then, but wow, we do not see it in 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 that. We do not see it in Fed funds. You're in Fed funds. Uh, which is, I think, a better magnitude than trying to take in the middle of the month because that, and I'm actually taking January Fed funds of next month because that's for the closes, average close in the month of December. Gives you how many hikes they're going to have. And, uh, you know, that, that uh, year-end Fed funds is 117, and it's actually way below the high that it was earlier. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, as I said, yeah, there's, there's uh, the Fed doesn't know itself. There's going to be a lot of data. Uh, normally, we would get it next Friday, uh, which is March 3rd, because February is a short month. Uh, they don't quite have it together, so then they skip to the second Friday. That isn't often, but it is often happen after uh, January, I mean, after February. Uh, so we know March 10th is critically important, and as I mentioned to you last week, um, March 14th, and which is the first day of the Fed meeting, we get the PPI. March 15th, the, the morning of the final meeting, so just a few hours before the announcement, we get the, the, the CPI. Those three, I think, are going to be critical in terms of whether they're going to move or not. I still do not expect it, but very hot numbers there could uh, certainly uh, change it. The bond market also is <laughs> is really not expecting it. 
Um, yeah, well, I mean, what, Trump is is very important to moving the markets on one way or the other. Um, we got a preliminary report on his new immigration plan, which is far milder than the old one. That's very, very good news. It won't disrupt business at all. It only apply to immigrants that have not been in the United States before and have permanent visas or green cards or H-1B visas and all all those things that the businesses rely on. So, I mean, that's certainly uh, a, a good development. Um, you know, outside of that, uh, you know, even today, just a few minutes ago, talked again about how important lowering regulation is. Of course, you know, he has to go through on that. Um, Investors and corporate America love that. Uh, big news, uh, just the last item, I think, is when Mnuchin, and I think he said on CNBC, said that we will probably not have a tax plan until August. A little disappointing. Many thought it was going to be earlier in the summer. However, let's get it right. Uh, it doesn't mean it can't be re- retroactive to this year uh, and uh, be um, very, very stimulatory for both uh, corporate earnings and the stock market. So I know one of our conversations with Brad uh, is going to turn out to be he focuses a lot on trade. He focuses a lot on on uh, the Asian savings glut um, that he, he says has been one of the big factors leading to you know low interest rates around the world. He talks about Bernanke's paper that is focused on that. Uh, and Professor, I think this is one of the more interesting conversations we've had. We've had this conversation before here, but you know a lot of people I talk to still believe the Fed is sort of artificially keeping rates yeah. down here in the U.S. and and this sort of global savings dynamic is one of the things that, that we've talked about is as a contributor to low interest rates. Maybe maybe just weigh in before we turn the conversation to Brad. Your your take uh, and as in context of what you just talked about with Very interest rates different. too. Very different. In fact, uh, I I have often said the biggest myth on Wall Street is that uh, it was the Fed, the central banks of the world, that forced interest rates down to zero. To me, that's totally false. It was fundamental economic and financial forces, low inflation, very low growth, high risk aversion, high demands um, for liquidity in treasuries by governments, uh, by the Fed, you know, $2 trillion of excess reserves um, uh, in, in, uh, in the banks today. Uh, the uh, negative beta nature of the treasury market has made it a favorite as a hedge. The demands for treasuries are just, you know, had gone through the roof as a result of the crisis. The aging of the population makes people more risk averse. All that made interest rates zero. And the Fed, we are fortunate, central banks of the world followed them down. Because if they tried to resist and do it up, I think things would have, uh, you know, bounced back much slower than, than they did. So, yeah, I'm on completely the other side of that. I know there's people disagree with me on that, but it is something that I have uh, studied for quite a long time. Actually, one of my specialties was interest rates when I got my Ph.D. in economics at at MIT. uh, Oh, wow. How many years ago? 1971. So long time. Nice. Well, Professor, thanks uh, for for giving some time here on, on your comments. Thank you very much. So, you know, we're going to we're turn the conversation over to, to Brad Setzer. Uh, so, again, he's, he's at the Council 
of, of foreign relations. Uh, now, he, Brad has a very interesting background. Uh, he's worked with Noel Rubini. He was the global head of research at Rubini Economics. He co-authored a book with Rubini. Uh, he's also um, been a visiting scholar at the IMF. Uh, so, Brad, welcome to our program. Uh, thanks. It's great to be on. So you, you've got a really diverse background here, a lot of interesting experiences. Why don't you first give us a little bit of, of sense um, what you're focused on? Give us a little bit about your background of, of working your past experiences and how that how that's gotten you to where you are today. Well, I think I uh, I got my my start in international economics working at the U.S. Treasury in the late 1990s and working on the Asia crisis, the Russia crisis, a whole string of emerging market financial crises. Uh, and then that led to the book that I did with Nuriel on uh, essentially how to manage emerging market financial crises. And that came out in uh, 2004. Uh, our timing was not uh, ideal. Uh, you know, we had been through an, an era from you know, roughly 1995 to roughly 2002 or 2003 when pretty much there was a major crisis in a major emerging economy every year. And then from you know, 2004 up until the global crisis and even beyond, uh, emerging markets did very well. And uh, the big uh, financial crisis emerged not out of the emerging world, but in, in the, the core of the global financial system in the U.S. and then in the euro area. Uh, and after 2004, I think I started to focus uh, much more on China, much more on China's contribution to global capital flows, and got very interested in what was called the uphill flow of, of money, the fact that emerging markets were financing the U.S., and how that played into the dynamics that, in my view, contributed to the global crisis. Uh, then I joined uh, the Obama administration, and I worked on um, currency policy on the euro area, financial crisis, on some sanctions-related issues, and uh, then finally on uh, the Puerto Rican uh, debt restructuring framework that became law last year. And then over the past year, since I've returned to the council, I've been very focused on uh, some of the issues around East Asia and trade with East Asia, in part because of the role they played in the elections, but also because uh, with the fall in commodity prices, there was an important increase in East Asia's current account surplus that I thought warranted more attention. Uh, and then recently I've also been, like I think everyone, I've gotten intrigued by the whole border adjustment tax idea. Yeah, no, that's been like the topic of the day. Every right now on, you know, just have the TV on, everybody's talking about the headlines on the border adjustment tax. Uh, and the, given that trade is one of your big specialties, I mean, why don't we, we let you weigh in with the topic of the day and then we'll go to some of these other maybe more interesting areas for you. Um, but border adjustment taxes, we had Alan Auerbach on just last week. He's been one of the big proponents. You know, he says it's not protectionist. He says it's not that complex. It's a way to get, um, you know, a lot of what Trump says he wants is to focus jobs on America, no offshore you know, the lot of what he says is sort of interesting. What, what's, what's your take on this border adjustment tax? Well, my take uh, is that it actually is complex. And because it is complex, my views on the border adjustment uh, the component of the tax plan are also a little, to be honest, complex. Um, I, I think Alan Arbach's idea is a very significant contribution to the debate. It, it sets forth 
a truly significant reform, one that has very far-reaching uh, implications. It's a fundamental reform. It's not a modest shift. And I think uh, Dr. Arbark envisions it as something that would eventually need to be adopted globally, not just in one country. And I think that has some bearing on the economics of it. That said, and I think it has a, a, a very powerful, uh, one very powerful potential positive, which is I do think the current system of tax uh, both encourages our uh, leading tech companies to uh, essentially move their intellectual property offshore for tax reasons, and I think that has some negative side effects. And then I think it also probably has played a role in encouraging uh, pharmaceutical companies to locate production of pharmaceuticals offshore. Uh, this is a byproduct of the current tax system, and the border uh, adjustment by exempting export revenue, including uh, intellectual property exports from calculations of tax would effectively eliminate those kinds of incentives. So I think that's that's a very significant uh, advantage. I think it has a couple of very important disadvantages. Uh, one is a byproduct of the fact that it uh, that it does exempt export revenues from tax, and that is that uh, the the super profits that are earned by our tech sector, uh, the super profits that are earned on the exports, you know, economic rents basically earned on the export of natural resources, would under uh, the proposal be exempt from tax. Now, su profits made domestically are still taxed at a lower rate, but profits from the export of intellectual property or for the export of natural resources are not. And I think that removes an important source of future revenue, and that worries me. Uh, I also am a little bit worried about the regressive nature of the, the tax. It's a tax on the imported component of consumption in the first instance. Now, there's an argument that Dr. Arbuck has made that, that once the exchange rate fully adjusts, there's no real impact, but I think there's some doubts about whether the exchange rate would adjust in full, so there's a potential... Uh, regressive shift in the structure of tax. And then finally, I'm not actually convinced it will generate as much revenue as its proponents claim. Uh, and, and I think Dr. Arbach is actually uh, a very honest advocate of his idea, uh, and I think he might even agree with some aspects of this argument. But essentially, it only generates the, the a trillion dollars over 10 years and so roughly $100 billion a year if the U.S. is running a sustained large trade deficit. And I don't think the U.S. can run trade deficits on the current scale uh, for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years without having an unsustainable buildup of our external debt. So I think the looking to this as a source of revenue uh, over the long run is a little bit of uh, a mistake. And then one other point where I actually probably disagree a little bit with Dr. Arbach is I think there, while the proposal will get rid of some of the tax gains in the current system. It potentially creates incentives for new kinds of tax gains, particularly overstating exports, and that might also uh, that adds complexity to the administration and runs the risk that it won't generate quite as much revenue as some are hoping. So, yeah. as I said, my views on this are not 
straightforward. Yeah, no, all these policies are very, they're very difficult. There's always sorts of these unintended consequences of all these types of policies. We're talking with Brad Setzer uh, at the Council of Foreign Relations. Um, Brad, so let's let's turn the, the conversation a little bit. We've talked a lot about the board adjustment tax here in the program. Maybe let's turn to some some other issues. Uh, let's let's talk about that global savings dynamic where. You know, one of the, the big issues, interest rates here are, are very low, uh, and, and you talk about the buildup of risk from uh, the global savings. You, you mentioned that in, in your earlier comments. Why don't you, you talk us through that um, and where, where you see some of the pressures coming from, from Asia? Sure. Um, you know, right now, uh, both Europe, so the euro area, but also Switzerland, Sweden, most of Northern Europe, and the big countries in East Asia, are running fairly significant current account surpluses. So a current account surplus means an excess of savings relative to investment. So all these countries are running savings surplus and exporting their spare savings to the world. Uh, That has been a factor keeping down U.S. rates. We're part of a global economy. And if U.S. rates are much higher than European rates, if U.S. rates are much higher than Japanese rates or Korean rates, that pulls in foreign funds and that in turn depresses, pulls back down U.S. interest rates. Now, I think the reasons why Europe is exporting savings and the reasons why Asia is exporting savings are a little bit different. In Europe, there's not an extraordinary high rate of savings. What is depressed and has been depressed since the global crisis is the level of investment. And in Europe, I think there's a pretty strong case, very strong case actually, for increased public investment. In Asia, by contrast, the overall level of savings is very high, uh, and so too, on all honesty, is the level of investment. Both are actually quite high, but it is the extremely high level of savings that leads Asia to export savings, and that contributes to uh, the pressures we see on the trade side, but also to low interest rates. The most extreme example is China. In 2015, China saved a little less than half of its GDP, 48% of its GDP. So even though China was investing at an incredibly rapid clip, well over 40% of its GDP in 2015, it was still exporting savings to the world. And I think that uh, poses a set of risk. Uh, It poses risk to China because a lot of people think that the current high level of investment in China is creating inefficiencies, leading to bad loans in the banking system, leading to future losses. At the same time, if investment falls and China's savings stays so high, China's trade surplus would have to go back up. China would be exporting even more savings to the world, and that would put further downward pressure on U.S. interest rates and also lead to more trade-related dislocations. And so I I very much worry that without the right policy mix in China, we could actually see another China shock, kind of like what we saw in the 2000s. Yeah, so you had a few different comments there. So one was that Europe could use the the investment side. Um, do we actually see anything happening there that they're going to actually, you know, do more deficit spending? I mean, we don't. Germany's been very reluctant to let these countries actually, you know, open the fiscal purse there. Um, but you know, whereas in in Asia we have Japan, we have China. They're both been stepping on the gas a little bit towards fiscal side fiscal spending. What what's your what's your sense on those dynamics between the politics in Europe and then how they're addressing these issues in Asia? So I, I unfortunately don't see 
much movement in Europe to support public uh, investment. You know, I think part of that is allowing a a uh, slower pace of consolidation in countries like Spain and countries like Italy and allowing more scope for public investment perhaps in those countries, but also just a slower pace of fiscal consolidation. Uh, but a, a tremendous amount could be done by increasing public investment inside Germany. Uh, Germany's fiscal surplus in the past year came in above forecast, close to a percentage point of GDP. And there's a lot of evidence that Germany actually is under-investing in its public infrastructure, that it's investing less in its public infrastructure than France, that uh, it's investing at a below-replacement rate. So I do think there is scope to do more. All that said, uh, low interest rates, the ECB's policy, and a slower pace of consolidation than was uh, present a couple years ago has meant that Europe's undergoing a sort of slow cyclical recovery in private investment is, I think, picking up a bit. East Asia is a little bit different. Um, I wouldn't say Japan has actually uh, done a lot on the investment side. Abe did a little bit in his first year, but then he turned pretty quickly to fiscal consolidation. Uh, he over-consolidated by rising the, re- increasing the consumption tax and now has slowed back down. I think that slowdown was appropriate. And then in China, you know, China is just a very different beast. Uh, China probably is doing too much public investment. Um, however, if China cuts back on public investment while savings remain so high, its economy slows and Chinese demand for the world's goods goes down and its trade surplus goes up. So in order for China to be able to cut back on public investment, and China does its public investment largely off balance sheet, through these kind of funky local government investment vehicles, uh, a lot of it through uh, municipal and provincial governments, but in order for China to cut back on and a lot through state enterprise, so you know it's kind of a complex thing. But in order for China to be able to cut back on that, which would be broadly speaking healthy, there's probably too much public investment, without having negative spillovers to the world. In my view, China also needs to take some pretty significant steps to bring down its savings rate, most notably by increasing its spending on social insurance. Yeah, Brad, this is Jeff Weniger. I, I'm just sitting here thinking about um, capital flight out of out of China, uh, with specific reference to the United States. Um, with the case Shiller 10, the home price index, we now have four cities in the U.S. where home prices are back above the pre-bubble um, peaks. Uh, that's Boston, Seattle, and then um, uh, Denver and San Francisco. I'm just thinking about you know experience with with Canada. You know, you go to go to British Columbia. Basically, there's there's a meme, maybe maybe true, maybe false, that the Vancouver home prices are being propped by flighty money out of China. Um, you could argue the same thing all th- all throughout the Pacific Coast in in America. Um, is it a concern that, I mean, with with the Chinese government trying to crack down on this, that there's going to be um, more of an exacerbation of what is essentially a U.S. home price uh, state of appreciation that's now pushing a decade. Well. If- if China succeeds at cracking down on the the outflows, uh, there should be some uh, reduction in buying demand in those cities which have have seen a significant influx of, uh, of Chinese flight capital. Uh, so I think it would take some of the pressure off those markets. Obviously, it's it's a concern if you're making your living selling homes in Los mm. Angeles or apartments in uh, Vancouver. 
to the Chinese, but in terms of its broad macroeconomic effects, I think it would address, help reduce some of the concerns about excess appreciation. So do you suspect that they will succeed in cracking down on it, or...? I'm watching that very closely. I mean, if you if you look at the the estimated magnitudes, and you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, and it depends on how you do the calculations, so forth and so on. But broadly speaking, uh, let's say the best estimates of flows into global real estate out of China are kind of in the 50 billion range. The total financial private financial outflow from China. And that outflow is financed in part by a current account surplus, so it's not all financed by uh, reserve sales. It's kind of maybe it's over 500 billion, probably 600 billion. You can get a higher number if you want pretty easily. Uh, and that's been financed, as I mentioned, partially through a 200 billion dollar current account surplus, so through the money that China earns on its trade, but also by selling off its reserves. Point being, real estate is not well. It has a, it's very visible. Real estate doesn't account for the bulk of the outflow. That's point one. Point two, I do think that China needs to crack down on capital flight. Uh, I don't think it would be healthy for the world if China were to depreciate, China's currency were to depreciate much further. Uh, and I think a large amount of the flight is driven by expectations. The sense the renminbi has depreciated by about 10% against the dollar and by a similar amount against the basket. Uh, over the past 18 months, there's now a set, an, an expectation of further depreciation. And that expectation, more than underlying fundamentals, in my view, is driving the capital flight. And so I do think pulling back on that would be healthy. I think China moved forward, frankly, too fast with financial account liberalization and was too slow on more fundamental domestic financial reforms cleaning up the bad banks. And as a result, uh, I actually welcome China's steps to try to limit financial outflows. I think that could help stabilize the exchange rate, and I think it will hopefully encourage China to focus on domestic financial reform, the necessary domestic recapitalization, so that China, when it opens up its economy further in the future, can do so in a way that doesn't lead to massive outflows from China. So, Brad, you know, one of the, the other big topics of the you know day has been, you know, is is Trump going to call China currency manipulator? Um, they they seem to be backing off that, you know, claim. Um, what's your sense? You know, a lot, you know, some people would say if you called him a currency manipulator, they let it free float. It would just significantly depreciate and not not actually appreciate the way he seemingly wants it to. Um, give maybe give us a sense on how where you think the ch- China currency is. Um, we've talked about some of these outflow pressures, so it sounds like it it could have the depreciation from your perspective, but maybe add some color on what, what you think is going on there. I mean, I think there is no doubt that if China stopped intervening right now, uh, China's currency would depreciate. Uh, so it would not achieve the objective. Um, China has been selling reserves, um, you know, roughly at a pace of uh, uh, 100 to 150 billion per quarter, but it's that varies a lot, and it depends on the measure. And I, uh, there are indications that suggest that after China cracked down on uh, capital flight in November and December, uh, that the pace of outflows and the pace of reserve drain has slowed. But no question, China has been selling reserves at a significant pace, 
and working to keep its currency from falling. So in, in that sense, this is absolutely the wrong time to name China a manipulator. The last thing we should want is for China to stop managing its currency, let its currency float, and see its currency float down. That would be uh, uh, that would be counterproductive, in my view, to the, the expressed desire of the uh, of Trump's, you know, Trump himself and his team to see the the, the deficit with China fall, the trade deficit with China fall. So it, it, it's just the wrong wrong time to focus on the currency issue. And I, I agree with those who say that you know, right now we want China to manage its currency. We don't want a further depreciation. And we should be talking to China and trying to encourage China to put the policies in place domestically that would allow China to float at some point in the future, but only when we would have, only float when pressures have been reduced and there wouldn't be an immediate depreciation. So I think we have to recognize that for now we want China to manage its currency. It's a big shift. I realize that's a big shift. That's my assessment of what is in the current U.S. interest. So maybe let's, let's maybe we have time for another one or two questions. But um, one of the you know big risks generally for emerging markets has been you get a very strong dollar, and you know they have debts denominated in dollars. Uh, when we were talking with Professor Siegel last week on the bat tax, he was worried that if we had a strong dollar, this could cause you know crisis throughout emerging markets in you know who have this dollar debt. What's your general sense of of that? Profile today, where you know the the reserves, the assets against the the liabilities are, uh, and, and what do you think are the biggest risks towards emerging market economies generally? Well, I mean, one of them is the topic we've been discussing. Uh, the the outflow pressures from China only emerged after the dollar strengthened in 2014. So they're a function of the dollar's strength, uh, and because the dollar was so strong. Uh, and China had followed the dollar up in 2014, I think that's why the Chinese felt like they had to uh, engineer a bit of a depreciation or they couldn't support, they were unwilling to support China's currency at a stable rate against the dollar back in 2015 when the dollar was so strong globally. And so one of the risks of a further appreciation of the dollar, whether it's from a a border adjustment uh, tax or or from uh, U.S. domestic macroeconomic policy, uh, you know, a, a big fiscal deficit that leads the Fed to aggressively tighten. One of those risks is that at least China's pegged to break, and I think that's something that does need to be factored in. Other than that, it's it's actually a fairly com, in my view, a complex story. Uh, state companies and private companies, but particularly state country companies, the Petrobras, the Rosneft the Pemexes of the world, have a lot of dollar-denominated debt. In most cases, uh, the governments of emerging economies now have more foreign currency reserves than they themselves narrowly defined, uh, so the government of Brazil as opposed to Petrobras. Then, so there's more Brazilian reserves than there are. There is Brazilian foreign currency-denominated government debt. And so there's a, a buffer there that probably insulates the really big state companies. Uh, and that does account for a significant amount of emerging economies' dollar-denominated debt. That said, there are some countries where that not, is not the case. And those are the countries that I think are 
our, our most vulnerable, most exposed, uh, and, and the one that sort of jumps out, unfortunately, on every screen is Turkey. Yeah. So maybe sort of some concluding thoughts. I mean, we talked about a number of different issues here. Uh, sort of your, your things you're focused on, um, you know, the state, what you'd say of, of the global economy, global trade, any other final closing thoughts that you would have for, for our listeners? Sure. I mean, the big, big picture thought uh, is that it's not healthy to have over a half trillion dollars, roughly a half trillion dollar current account surplus in Europe and simultaneously have over a half trillion dollars in current account surplus in East Asia. That when Europe and East Asia are together running a trillion dollar current account surplus, uh, and both Europe and East Asia are manufacturing exporters, so they're not, they're not generating the surplus by exporting oil, they're generating the surplus by exporting manufacturing goods. That when the two setting North America aside, the two, two of the biggest manufacturing powers are both running current, you know, running big trade surpluses, have excess savings. There's going to be uh, a reflection of that elsewhere. And right now, a large part of that reflection of that is in the U.S. And while uh, this excess of savings is, in my view, helping to hold Treasury rates down, it is also contributing to a persistent and uh, kind of growing now deficit in manufacturers in the U.S. And so I think one important way the global economy can become healthier is if uh, Asia and Europe become a bit more reliant on their own demand, have a little bit less excess savings, and don't need uh, to rely on exports to the U.S. and to others, to Canada and Mexico, to the same degree. And that would, I think, take some of the pressure off trade policy, too. It would, it would be uh, useful in a lot of ways if the U.S. manufacturing trade deficit started to fall. Well, very good. I'm talking to Brad Setzer of the Council of, of Foreign Relations. Brad, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to have a conversation with Jeff Winninger, now a asset allocation strategist at WisdomTree. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. This is Behind the Markets. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at WisdomTree, joined for the remainder of the show by Jeff Winninger, now an asset allocation strategist at WisdomTree. Jeff joins me, really a brand new employee, joined this week, traveling with me here in Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, Jeff, you've been on the program a few times before in your previous role at BMO. Well, welcome back. Uh, great to have you here in the studio for the first time. Thanks, Jeremy. It's uh, been three days with you, so uh, ready to finally get rid of you and move back to Chicago. I hear you. <laughs> um, but no, so we had an interesting conversation with Brad Setzer on the first part of the program talking about global gluts of savings from Asia, from Europe, what to do there. Uh, let's just re reflect on, on that conversation for a moment. I mean, what, what was your, your thinking of you know, reading a lot of Brad's work that we did this week, and what, what's your thoughts generally here? Yeah, I think, you know, actually towards the tail end, what was so critical is there is a um, there's a disconnect between those of us in the industry that realize the renminbi is one of the most expensive currencies in the world, um, and perhaps the general public that keeps hearing and reading via tweets that essentially the Chinese are currency manipulators, the currency is super cheap. The reality is, is that was more of a story of a decade ago when you could make the statement the Chinese are manipulating, it's it's dirt cheap, and they have some sort of unfair trade advantage. The reality is, is that right now. 
Um, when you think about, even though the fact that CNY has depreciated from what call it about about 605, 606 a few years ago, now pushing seven, even with that, it's still quasi pegged to the greenback. And if you if you start thinking about um, trade competitiveness, um, that was the problem with. China about a year ago, when the, when the entire market was fretting over whether they were going to have a hard landing, it was because the currency was so expensive. Yeah, I mean, it's it's good to see Trump back away from that, calling them mm-hmm. a currency manipulator. It seems like maybe people are telling him, listen, if you if they if you really push this, it's going to depreciate, not appreciate. So it's uh, it's sort of an interesting interesting take. What about you know how do you think about investing in Asia and and Europe generally? I mean, that's a big topic. It, he had a, he also talked on on just the the pressure on interest rates was another big story. Mm-hmm. I mean, and one of the the things you and I have batted around back and forth is where is interest rates going to go this year? I mean, the consensus. Uh, has definitely been rates are heading higher, although not quickly. You know, talking with mm-hmm. Professor Siegel, he and I have have talked. He doesn't think rates are going that much above three percent um, anytime soon, um, because you know you do have this global savings from Europe, from from Asia that needs to find a home, and the U.S. yield is a is a part of that. But what's what's your general sense on on rates today, where where they're going? Yeah, it's it's um. You know, Professor Siegel kind of opened up the uh, the show, pointing out that the the ten year T note had gone down to two thirty one. My memory serves it was somewhere around two sixty, right around the time when that consensus was so crowded, right around the New Year. Um, and if you looked um, just a few weeks ago, basically at, at street consensus estimates for for the T note, you found ninety two percent of economists were looking for rising rates in seventeen. Ninety two percent. Now, if you are naturally uh, predisposed to contrarianism, boy, something tells you, well, rates aren't going to rise. They could actually fall. Um, you know, you don't see something that is just that crowded. I think rarely uh, in the last decade or so have we seen anything like that with such a, a bearish consensus on fixed income. Um, there are some reasons to, you know, to doubt the Trumpflation trade. Um, Despite the fact that there are some indications that things can be, you know, we're going to get the corporate tax reform. You know, he says he wants 75% re- reductions in regulations. Heck, if we can get 5% reductions in regulations, we can spell a boom in this country. You know, these types of things are very positive. But a lot of the secular stagnation stories that are out there still make some sense the demographic issues, the aging of the, the baby boomers, and so forth. These are the types of things, along with what Brad Setzer was pointing out with the Asian savings club, these are the types of things that can keep a lid on rates. I mean, um, you know, if somebody's out there prognosticating some sort of super spike in long bond yields, I think they're going to be um, a little disappointed in 2017. No, I hear you. Um, so let, let's talk about where we would be thinking about allocating around the world. Um, you know, you have a global portfolio, stocks, bonds. Uh, where within mm-hmm. the the markets are you know as as you've been thinking about the markets, previous position now just said wisdom tree just briefly. How are you thinking about you know what you were telling clients before? Where you know what are you what are you thinking about the markets? Well, you know, in terms of um, you know on the equity side. Um, in Europe, boy, oh boy, there is there is a lot of, let's call it undue political pessimism based on people got burned in, in incorrectly forecasting Brexit and Trump. Essentially, yeah. they, so they tie Brexit and Trump into the Dutch elections and the French elections and the German elections. And really, we're comparing um, maybe apples and oranges, certainly not apples and apples. Um, essentially, the key bear case right now for European equities, if somebody was to make it, is they would point to the April 1st round of French elections and the May 2nd round. That would be the bear case that somebody would make. The difference is, is 
If you looked at the on the eve of Brexit, you know, the Financial Times poll of polls uh, right before June 23rd, it was a two, three-point differential. So you had something that was pretty neck and neck. There was no reason to be abundantly surprised by Brexit happening. Same thing, you could go, you know, to Ladbrokes or something like that over in London, and you could get uh, uh, action on, on Trump and Clinton. Um, and Trump was essentially a, a one in three, one in four probability. It was not 100 to one. Um, the difference is, is Le Pen actually going and winning past the first round and going on to the second round, because right now she'll get past the first round. Um, but in the second round, against some of these more mainstream type candidates, if the polling is correct, and once again, we're not talking about one or two point differentials, we're talking about 15, 20 point differentials in the polling right now, then Le Pen is not a risk, it would seem. Relative to consensus right here in February for some sort of Le Pen victory um, in May. Similarly, you know, you have the Dutch elections coming up March 15th. Uh, Geert Wilders can certainly become successful, but he can't form a government. So this big risk of, of whether it's Frexit or the Dutch going rogue and becoming Eurosceptic, I think it's probably overblown. So um, in terms of, of forming a bull case on, on continental European equities, I think there's some things here that we're going to realize as we get into spring and summer that a lot of this stuff is just going to fade away and perhaps not be as big of a deal at least in the near term, as we had previously expected. Yeah, last week on the program, we had Jay Pulaski, who came on and said he thinks we're past peak bearishness on the Europe. He thinks we should be buying European banks. You should be buying cyclicals from Europe. That just the, the he used the term past peak bearishness. So it's sort of interesting. <laughs> you're, you're echoing some of that, that, you know, the French elections aren't as big of a risk in your mind as as people, you know, like to make it out from the Brexit and, and the Trump probabilities there. Now, you know, on Europe, one of the big questions is the euro. Um, you know, it's it's fallen a lot, um, you know, on, on some standard measures of fair value, PPP measures of fair value. Uh, it looks undervalued. Uh, Trump's guy has said Germany's getting this big advantage. It's more than 20 percent. And he's right in a lot of ways. It's yeah. actually more than 20 percent undervalued for Germany. Now, if you look, say, what is the fair value for Spain, for Italy? It actually may not be actually cheap enough. Um, so I, I'm curious. Um, you know, one of the things I talk a lot about is do you want the euro when you buy Europe? Um, I mean, how do you think that conversation goes in, in your experience on the strategy side? BMO, how did you guys view currency? How are you rethinking about currency in any ways since you and I have gotten to know each other a little bit? Jim, what's your take? Yeah, yeah probably not get into uh, necessarily what we were doing at the old shop so much. But, um, you know, in terms of the, the euro, um, there does seem to be a little bit of a gravitational pull. Now, the the currency is considerably more cheap than it was in the past. I mean, it used to be at a buck forty. Um, and we're starting to see some of the, the benefits of that uh, now in the southern periphery. But um, once again, I mean, in terms of what the situation, if the, if the Germans were to go back to a, a core euro, let's say, they wouldn't call it the mark, but we could call it the mark for this. Um, the Spanish were to take the peseta and, and Italians would go to lira. I mean, it might be 20 or 30 percentage points uh, of differential on day one. I think that's some of the risk that we've seen um, with French bonds blowing out uh, relative to German boons. Um, in, in recent weeks on that on that Le Pen risk. Um, the fact remains that even with the ECB being so extraordinary, I mean, really, it's just unbelievable. They continue to do this. The policy of uh, QE remains intact through 2017. Um, that even with the euro at 105, 106, um, the economy can't seem to really get to any, any sort of escape from the doldrums. 
So you could argue that, um, you know, the policy would need to be extended uh, sometime later this year. At the same time, as we're getting indications from the, from the Federal Reserve, the Fed says they want to hike three times this year. Um, the market says the Fed's going to hike two times. So the path for surprise there is for more hikes in the United States and perhaps more easiness out of the Europeans. So, um, it, you know, there seems to be this gravitational pull back towards parity. I had been talking about that for some time, and now here we're at 105, 106. It's unbelievable uh, how much it's moved. Um, but it's going to be predicated really on whether or not we get this hawkish surprise uh, out of Janet Yellen and the dovish surprise out of Draghi. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to watch. I mean, when I, I think people are so skeptical the Fed actually does the three, right? We, they thought people were, they thought they were going to do four last year. They did one. Uh, so now they say we're going to do three this year. <laughs> you know, people say, show me the first one. And then yeah. we'll see. We'll talk about the second one. But I, I think people would actually really be shocked if they if they do three. Uh, we're talking here with, with Jeff Winninger, uh, now an asset allocation strategist at Wisdom Tree, previously at BMO Private Bank. Um, talk, Jeff, maybe let's talk at a higher level, you know, talking from a client's perspective, things that you, as you were talking to clients, I mean, what would you say, you know, some of the, the mistakes you saw most often being made, you know, as people look at their portfolios, what are some of the kind of guidance you would give people as a strategist at BMO and trying to give people guidance? Here's, you know, here's what you're doing and, and where, where people really went wrong. Yeah. Um, well, not necessarily at the at, at the firm uh, specifically, because um, well, you know, the clients are they're you know similar uh, across firms. It can be uh, that case, but uh, in general, the things I've noticed um, among inver- American investors in in general um, tends to be this this insular U.S. focus. Um, if you even if you look at the nation just to our north, Canadian uh, Canadian. Um, individual, the Canadian pension, the Canadian endowment, uh, any of these entities um, seem to have much more of a global view. The American investor has been spoiled for many, many years because we've had the S&P 500 at our disposal, we've had the world's largest economy, and so forth. So, um, you know, through the years I've seen um, so many people kind of throw their hands up in frustration that emerging mandates, emerging equity mandates never seem to get any kind of traction. Uh, in the United States, I mean, if you look at the the emerging world in general, you're looking at half of global GDP. Yeah, half of global GDP. Now, Jeremy, when was the last time you uh, went in and took a look at you went into a client meeting or something, and and somebody said, "Yeah, our portfolio on the equity side, half we're half EM." No. When was the last time you even saw somebody who was a quarter EM? I mean, it's it's more likely they're at zero EM because yes. it's been out of favor for <laughs> a few years, and they said, "I can't, I can't do this anymore." EM has been dead money for five years. It's been... And before last year. Before last year. But yes, yes, exactly. Before, yeah, EM was up 11.2% last year, um, just short, just shy of the S&P 500. But aside from that, and, and that's something that you get um, such an, uh, an interesting dichotomy, is that we have this raging bull market here in the United States. It's been going on since March of 09. We're coming up on eight years of this. Uh, this summer will hit eight years of the economic expansion. Um but if you ask investors overseas, there's been a generalized malaise. I mean, look at the story of what was getting pounded last year, Mexico. Mexico was just dying on the vine. A, a few years ago, before last year's sharp rally, anything Russian, Russian rubles, Russian equities were just, just not just dead, dying, just dying in front of your very eyes. Um, and so, and and same thing with Europe and Japan, still nowhere near um, the old highs. So it's been a, an interesting transition here, and I think that the... Um, 
the U.S. investor, whether it's an institution or whether it's a retail investor or whatever it may be, needs to be thinking more globally because, look, the, 20, the 21st century is here. The United States will not always rule the roost. And the reality is, is that global GDP is not necessarily dominated by this country anymore. Yeah, and, and Trump is all about making America great again. So people think about we got to make our portfolios America again, <laughs> um, and that's you know been U.S. has been the top of the pack for the last six, seven years, ten years really. Um, but interestingly, you know, last year EM started to have this resurgence. This year, China. Uh, we talked a lot about China in the first part of the program. China is one of the best performing markets. The start of you know just the first two months of 2017, some of the, the Chinese indexes are up double the U.S. index. In the U.S. is robust six percent what you normally get in a year almost, but China's up almost almost double. Um, so it, it is interesting after people get so pessimistic on that, it, things just turn around. And that, that's something, things habitually that, that seems to happen. Yeah. And, and, you know, in the United States, when you get um, to these, well, do we want to call it a late stage or later stages within a bull market, you have to start thinking about um, how to rotate into some some areas that may be cheaper or things that did not participate quite so much. There's been um, a lot of things, you know, give and take for the better part of about seven or eight years, a, a tremendous growth rally, uh, growth biases, um, they look long in the tooth. And so you have to start thinking about some of the things that are that are perhaps haven't been participating as much. Um, you know, if this guy manages to get 3, 3% real GDP, you know, I don't know if he will, but if, if he manages to do it, you know, he can start with those regulations. I'm going to hold him to that 75% regulation cut. Once again, not realistic, but let's say he cuts regulations 5%, 10%. Then maybe you could pull something like that off. Um, then it really opens up the door to, to which areas are getting deregulated, and that's conversation <laughs> for another show, I surmise. Yeah. What, what um, So we talked a little bit about one thing, people are too U.S.-centric, not enough global. Emerging markets would be be one area. Um, how, how do you think about those international opportunities today, EM versus just developed Europe, developed international Europe and Japan type, type allocations? Do you have a, a preference there where you would be leaning more heavily into? Well, I mean, really, a lot of it boils down to um, those relative to the United States, because that's where you're seeing the biggest differentials. Because for the most part, there hasn't been the great performance disparity overseas quite like we've had in overseas relative to domestic. Um, you kind of have to pick your spots a little bit, I think. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I do think that the European story is, is interesting, at least on a cyclical basis, a 2017-type basis, because I do uh, imagine that although those political risks are there, they do seem overblown for the reasons of basic arithmetic and mathematics, until, unless we see something otherwise um, in terms of the rise of the so-called uh, populist movements in the next one to two quarters. That, that story should be intact. Um, you know, in the emerging world, a lot of the risks that you might have had a couple decades ago well, let's, let's go back to the late – let's go to the Asian contagion. I mean, go back to 97, 98. I mean, what are the primary reasons why you had the Asian contagion? You were pegged to the greenback, um, and you had greenback debt. And to the credit of the Asian economies in the last two decades, they learned their lesson. They said, we're not going to let this happen again. Um, so if you're in, in, in Korea, you're in Malaysia, you know, you're, you're going to be issuing your debt in yuan and ringgit and so forth. It's not necessarily going to be in greenbacks like it was. I mean, years ago, when you wanted to go into capital markets and you wanted to issue debt, well, guess what? Greenbacks are bust. That's what yeah. you issued the debt in. Um, you know, if you were in um, 
you know, just transitioning to a different concept. I mean, there was no such thing as a going out and issuing uh, debt in Brazil in the 80s. You couldn't do that. The capital markets weren't going to enable you to do, to do that when you had 10,000% hyperinflation. Um, so, a lot of the things for the cataclysmic bear market in, in emerging markets, the, the crash-type scenario that we may have seen in the late 90s, a lot of those, those bear cases have dissipated in the last couple decades. Um, so, I think what you would end up with is a situation where uh, there's a, a lot of built-in skepticism, which is a contrarian's dream. The valuations are cheap. Broad EM is at 12 times earnings. 12 times earnings. Um, so, it shapes up to, for, to be a decent valuation spot. Nice. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think one of the big stories, and, and we talk about this a lot, and, and in the program, we talked about this border adjustment tax the last few weeks. We had Alan Auerbach. We talked about it with Brad Sester. Assessor, uh, Professor Eagles weighed in a bit. And so one of the, the risks is a strong dollar to foreign investments. And Professor Siegel was worried that people invest overseas. You get If you got this border adjustment tax, really made a big, strong dollar. It could wipe out a lot of your, your, your wealth if you've been investing overseas. We've talked a lot uh, about currency hedging at Wisdom Tree. I think that's one thing that, you know, if you're thinking about investing overseas, currency hedging, not having to take the currency risk if you go overseas with this strong dollar potential of a board adjustment tax, that is something I would keep eye on. Um, you know, now we're, we're hearing that the White House is a little bit less favorable of the House plan on the board adjustment tax. Doesn't mean that Trump isn't appealed to it. He's also been talking about how it goes to a lot of his goals of keeping jobs in the U.S. So it's something to stay focused on. I think I would not underestimate that risk of something like that going through. Thinking about foreign assets, uh, which I like, the valuation story I like, but thinking about the risk of the currency, I probably don't like. So think about that from a hedge standpoint. Uh, Jeff, thanks for coming to the studio here on campus. Jeff Winninger, an asset allocation strategist at Wisdom Tree. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, great to have you here. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 111. You can now also listen to the show on the Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.